Hello, and thanks for joining us for this episode of Her Gavel, a podcast where we shatter the glass ceiling for women in law. I'm your host, Stephanie Watchman, and I've been coaching and training women attorneys all over the world for nearly a decade. Women lawyers, no matter where they are in their careers, face many challenges, frustrations, and some fantastic opportunities. On this podcast, I'll be interviewing experts to cover many of the issues I get asked about, like managing stress, career growth, law firm leadership, self-confidence, business development, and even planning for retirement. My goal is to provide you with the tools and tips you need for your own professional growth. And now, let's get on with the show. I'm so excited to introduce you to today's guest. I started getting involved with the Center for Legal Inclusiveness in Denver, Colorado, close to five years ago. And since then, Sarah has taken over as the chief executive officer, but her background in diversity and inclusivity is what really stands out. She's just an amazing woman, person, and thought leader in the area of diversity and inclusivity, and is actually really making a change in it, especially in the world of law. As background, Sarah, 15 years ago, started her career representing foster children in Washington, D.C. at the Children's Law Center. And she supervised attorneys, managed dozens of cases, and watched as the foster system disproportionately impacted black families while creating a further disenfranchised community. After working at the Children's Law Center, Sarah honed her oral advocacy skills as the founding partner of Zamani and Scott. Now this is really cool because this was a full service family law firm where she enjoyed her assisted reproductive technology practice and serving same-sex families. I mean, that was way ahead of its time. And at 2015, Sarah and her family moved home to Denver to be near her own family. And Sarah's entrepreneurial spirit led her to start a family law practice right here in Denver, Colorado, where I am. She became active in the community as one of the founding board members of Lawyers for Equal Justice and was appointed as a uniform law commissioner. Sarah has always had a strong passion for diversity and inclusivity. She was one of the first students to earn her bachelor's degree in comparative studies in race and ethnicity from Stanford University, and she also won the Community Building Award. Sarah has followed diversity and inclusivity throughout the duration of her career and has received her certificate in diversity and inclusivity from Cornell University. Sarah's passion, enthusiasm, and drive have led her to become the Chief Executive Officer at the Center for Legal Inclusiveness. Thank you for joining us today, Sarah. Hey, Stephanie. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm great. I've been looking forward to having you on for a really, really long time. As you know, we've been uh, tracking each other for a while, and finally it's happening, so I'm very excited Absolutely. about it. Uh, before we jump into the nuts and bolts of really what I want to talk to you about, I want to hear a little bit more about your background and what brought you to CLI and working on the other side of the law. Sure. So I'm um, from Denver, which I think is an important fact because not many of us are. Uh, I am one of the first to get my degree from Stanford in comparative studies in race and ethnicity with the focus on African-Americans and Latinos. And that was sort of my first journey into equity, diversity, and inclusion, EDI. 
And that's where it all kind of started for me. We didn't even know, Stephanie, if that major was going to last. <laughs> we didn't know how it was going to turn out. And of course, now there's this huge center, the Center for Comparative Studies and Race and Ethnicity at Stanford. And I was actually lucky enough to be mentioned in their newsletter over the summer. So I've maintained connections there, which has been great. Uh, after Stanford, I took a couple of years off. I taught English in Taiwan. And uh, I went into law school thinking about circle time because I taught kindergarten and <laughs> having no idea whatsoever what I was walking into. I thought it was going to be completely egalitarian and not this sort of capitalist place that it was. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I was like, study groups, what? Bell curve, what? Um, so I went to law school at the George Washington University Law School in Washington, D.C., and I stayed there for 15 years. I started my career representing kids in the abuse and neglect system. 100% of my clients were indigent. 100% of my clients were Black. That was sort of my hands-on experience as it relates to equity and as it relates to really challenging systems that oppressed and disenfranchise uh, groups of color and BIPOC communities. Around five years, I was pretty burnt out as it relates to that job. I kind of moved up the ranks and was a supervisor pretty quickly. And an old friend from law school wanted to have lunch. And at that point, I was thinking about what my next kind of career move was going to be. And she said, let's start a law firm. And I said, no, you're crazy. Who starts a law firm? And two days later, we started a law firm and put a whole bunch of preparation into it. And we had this unveiling in September of 2005. I'm sorry, September of 2010. And we really went for it. And we practiced family law with an emphasis on same sex um, adoption, surrogacy, uh, you know, making families, giving them the legal um, rights that they, you know, they're already families, but giving them the legal protections that they need. And I still had always been involved in EDI. I always did pro bono work. I still trained attorneys on implicit bias, things like that. I um, started two boards that helped families in modest means hopefully resolve their situations through alternative dispute resolution. And then I had a baby. I had a baby a little bit later in life. And I thought I was going back to my firm three months later. My firm was really my first baby. So I thought I was going to go back to my firm three months later, easy peasy. And I stayed away for a year. <laughs> and during that time, my dad became terminally ill. And he was still leaving, living here. And my husband at the time and I decided to make the move. And we moved back to Colorado. And we knew it was going to be a better lifestyle, better place, be around family. And so that's what we did. And then in February of 2016, I actually started another law firm here. Wow. And and it was really different, um, way more chill <laughs> than the East Coast, I will tell you that. I, that. I, really, I really enjoyed it. I continue to represent kids all the way through as it relates to custody cases, parental rights cases. And I still had my ear on the ground as it relates to EDI and what was going on. And I ended up getting my certificate from Cornell in diversity and inclusion. 
And that was really the turning point where I knew that I wanted to switch careers and do this full time. And at the time there was the opening at the Center for Legal Inclusiveness for a CEO. And I thought that's my dream job. I have to get it. How am I going to get it? And I got it. So I've been here now since April, 2020. So about a year and a half. And that's kind of my background. So that's quite a, like, that's quite a background and you certainly have seen a lot. And it's really clear like that you have a real passion for what you do with regard to DE&I. I'm, a lot of our listeners are from all around the country and also all around the world. And I think what we have in Colorado with the Center for Legal Inclusiveness might be quite unique. Can you share a little bit about the center, its mission, and some of the, the, um, the objectives of it? Sure. And before I say that, I want to say some people say DEI, some people say DENI. And some a lot say, of it different ways. Yeah. And some people say EDI and I say EDI. That's the most kind of recent um, cutting edge way to say it. Equity, diversity and inclusivity, thinking that without equity, there really is nothing. Um, you know, the difference between equity and inequality and this sort of thing. So just so uh, just to be now we're going to be all cutting edge. I like that because I don't want to be clear for your listeners. Yeah, I don't want to be in the in the in the past. Yeah, uh, just to be clear for your listeners when they hear different different um, iterations. So the Center for Legal Inclusiveness basically brings EDI solutions to the legal community. And we do that through programming, through training, through deep dive consultations. We literally tell law firms how to become, um, you know, how to make their EDI efforts more powerful. And um, that's what we've done since 2007, Stephanie. We've been around for a really long time and we have changed. We, this year, we're sort of making a change from being an advocacy-based organization to a solutions-based organization. So instead of just, you know, giving people the tools and giving people, you know, letting them how we think that they can best implement these tools, we're really going in and showing them how to do it. And so that's been a major change, game changer for us. And we're really excited about it. So what's something that you've done when you've gone into a firm? Because I work with a lot of firms and I actually met, I met the Center for Legal Inclusiveness after doing a few talks for them. For, for the association before you were part of it. Um, I see a lot, I see a lot, <laughs> I see a lot of stuff in yeah. law firms that you can definitely see that there's a huge gap when it comes to any kind of EDI, especially at the top ranks. Like at the associate, the, really at the junior associate or the younger associate level, I see it really being very 50-50. But when we start to move up within an organization, I'm seeing less and less EDI. You're saying 50-50 relates to people of color? Not just color, but um, women. Um, I, like In terms of um, LGBTQ, at the associate level, I see a lot more of that kind of diversity. But when I look at the equity level and the management committee level, I see middle-aged white guys. Yeah, absolutely. And That's I would what I see. I'm just saying it. Okay, everybody. <laughs> I'm just saying uh, it. I actually think the numbers as relates to both of those are a lot lower than people think, especially as it relates to the BIPOC community. Uh, we are really 
really, really behind in the legal profession as it relates to diversity. And there's two really important things that we need to note um, as it relates to diversity. First of all, diversity increases the bottom line. That has been established. We all know that. And diversity creates more creative outcomes. So it's helpful for our clients. It's helpful for the work we do. And we also know that law firms are not hiring other law firms who don't have diverse law um, you know, diverse law practices. They are cutting billable hours. They are not standing for it anymore, you know, as it relates to big law and some medium-sized firms. So um, I think that it's, you know, I think we might see women diversity and LGBTQ plus diversity, but we certainly aren't seeing the diversity as it relates to ableism, as it relates to BIPOC communities, um, at any level really. And what do they, what can they do? And what can you do if you're, you know, a, of a minority group to really start to get more opportunities in law firms? Like, it's both sides, right? So I, so and I, I'm also hearing one other thing I want to ask you about, Sarah, because yeah. I heard, I hear this, I've heard this from about four or five different law firms saying, "Hey, we only hi we hire the best. We don't care where they come from. We hire the best. So we're not even looking at anything else." And there's just not as much diversity, especially in our state, as maybe in others. Well, there's a couple things. First of all, the um, plight of diverse law students is a lot different than their white counterparts. Their grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-great-grandparents didn't all go to law school. They didn't say quid pro quo at the dinner table. They didn't know what law school was all about. A lot of them are generation college graduates. So um, to be put in law school where it's, you know, you're one of two in a class when you go to DU and CU, you know, maybe five and um, you don't have a community <laughs> and you don't have the support and you don't have what you really need to thrive um, leads to having lower grades. That has nothing to do with whether or not you're going to be a good lawyer. Let me be crystal clear about one thing. Your um, results on the LSAT have no uh, bearing on whether or not you're going to be a good law student. Whether or not you're a good law student has no bearing on whether or not you're going to be a good lawyer. And people just don't get it. And CLI actually had a resume collect of diverse law students where we have over a hundred resumes of diverse law students for our member organizations. And you should see these people's background. Um, we had them also add a personal statement so they could tell their story. If law firms really want diversity, they're gonna have to do what I call open the wedge. And they're gonna have to look at things other than grades, whether someone was at a journal, you know, on a journal, uh, whether they were at the top 10% of their class, um, those sort of things. We're going to have to widen that wedge and realize that a lot of also diverse communities, especially in the BIPOC community, choose oral advocacy and, you know, by, might be in moot court, trial court, these sort of things, uh, alternative dispute resolution programs over journals. And so we have to think about that too. Um, so there's many, if, if the law and law firms are ever going to change, they're going to have to widen the wedge. They always talk about pipeline being an issue. Yeah. Pipeline is not an issue. Pipeline might be an issue in Colorado, but why are we only recruiting in Colorado? Why aren't we recruiting nationally? 
Like I said, we have 100 resumes of diverse law students from around the country who say that they will move to Colorado for a summer associate position that, you know, we hope then turns into a full-time position. Um, you know, these law firms really need to have an onboarding system. They need to know what they're going to do once diverse candidates and once diverse associates come to their law firm. How are they going to make sure that they are supported? How are they going to make sure that they get uh, the, you know, good work, if you will, and, and are not just stuck on doc review? How are we going to make sure that they get a sponsor right away that they work closely with, not just a mentor? Uh, how are we going to really elevate their potential? How are we going to bring equity into the situation? How are we going to make sure that people aren't just you know, treating each other equally or they're being treated equally, but they're really given what they need to reach their highest potential. You know, I give the example of you take two new associates and let's say one is a better writer than the other. Well, instead of just thinking that the first associate who may be um, or the second associate who may be not as good of a writer, you know, instead of categorizing them automatically as a low potential employee, I say team members for equity purposes, so a low potential team member. No, we bring in a writing coach. You know, if we see people with oral advocacy skills who, you know, somebody has oral advocacy skills and another one doesn't, we bring in a coach about that. We give people what they need to be as successful as they possibly can be. And we learn about who our associates, who our team members are. We give everybody the strength finders test. Yeah. So we know absolutely, you know, where they stand as it relates to what their strengths are. I just talked to an organization who actually puts their strength finders results on the outside of their office. Really? So yeah, everybody, knows, yeah. everybody knows, you know, what their strengths are and, um, uh, excuse me, and then how to play to them. Uh, so there's so many things that people can do as it relates to retention. CLI, uh, with the help of Sam Carey Bar Association, which is the Black Bar Association in Denver, started what's called the Allies, which because there aren't enough Black associates at law firms, we created a cohort and we brought associates from different law firms together and created a group called the Allies. So there would be a group for Black associates to gather you know, to share their experiences, to vent, to do whatever they needed to do to support each other. So um, changing happening at the highest level of the firm, it, it drives me crazy because when I see what I see, which is white men, there's not um, an adaption of a growth mindset. They're in a fixed mindset mode. They think, you know, this is the way that we've done it for hundreds of years. So this is the way that we're going to continue to do it. But as you see, clients are not going to allow that to happen. Not after 2020, not after systemic racism being at the forefront of the American psyche. If they don't adopt a growth mindset, then their firms are going to eventually fail. Well, that's what I'm so here's here are some of the questions that I have. And maybe you can give our listeners some advice. Obviously, most of our listeners are, are women. I know that there's a couple of guys out there because they've emailed me this as well to let me know that they're listening, which I think is great. But the idea is, um, let's just say you don't have that much power. You're not, uh, you're, you're, maybe you're a partner, a woman partner, and you don't, and you don't have that much power at the very top. Is there anything that, that can, you can do as an individual contributor to 
start making change or to support change? Well, women in general don't advocate for themselves. I mean, problem across the board, right? Tell me more about that. Yeah. Well, this isn't just a legal problem. That's a problem across the board. We have, you know, spouts of imposter syndrome. We don't ask for the money that we deserve. We don't ask for the positions that we deserve. And we are not advocating for ourselves. That is something that needs to be taught and learned in law school and right out of getting, you know, right after you get out of law school. Our young lawyers division actually had a training about how to advocate for yourself, you know, in the law and um, in terms of getting up the ranks. I think that if there's no support at that level and if there's no, you know, employee resource groups at that level. And if they if there is no inclusivity at that level, you can have all the diversity you want, but if you don't have inclusivity, then your diversity efforts will fail. So to me, there's no inclusivity because if there was inclusivity, then people would be taking that person and looking at that person, that woman as a whole, as a whole individual and not just, you know, calling her a partner or putting her on the partner track. And so that's what I would say to that. What do you think is the best way that women could advocate for themselves? I think that's really hard because I think Stephanie, the system is so broken. So I'm not trying to dodge your question. Uh, You know, you could certainly have, you know, go on lunches with the equity partners. You can certainly find a female equity partner to team up with. You can switch your sponsor. You know, you can get involved in firm efforts, whatever those firm efforts may be. I don't know, learn how to golf. So you can go golf with the um, male partners. I mean, it's maddening. Um, So that's why I learned how to golf, actually, because I I come from the corporate world. And the only way that I could get new more business was to go to these golf outings. I still suck, but whatever. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. So do you see any change happening? Like, are there any really good examples of where change is starting to to happen as a result of the work that CLI is doing? I think that we see or seeing a lot of really good change happening. Yeah. I mean, the different initiatives that I told you about, the Resume Collect, the, ally, the Allies. But I think that big law is getting it, that they're tying their partner compensation to their EDI efforts, that they are counting, you know, pro bono hours towards billable time, that they're requiring a certain amount of EDI training, that they're um, tying those educational trainings, you know, they're making that billable time. Um, I, I see a lot of efforts and a lot of innovative efforts sort of happening. That's really interesting with tying it into billable time. As a result of that, are they are they com- still complaining that there's not enough um, paid billable hours, or it's it's starting to produce results like profitable results? Um, you know, I think it's too early to say that. You know, yeah. I think though, if you have an eighteen hundred billing requirement and you're allowed to use fifty of those on EDI or pro bono, and those are going to count to your pro bono or sorry, count towards your billable hours. I mean, that's a huge difference, right? That's that's a big change. That's and huge. Yeah, I, I love this, by the way. <laughs> yeah. I think if you're at the partner level and your compensation is going to be directly tied 
to how you've done in your EDI efforts and how you brought in um, diverse attorneys into your cases and how you've made sure that they build on your cases and that they're, you know, getting pitch work and that they're getting really good work. I think that's huge change. Making sure that you're keeping biases out of your law firms by having hiring committees that, you know, are made up of everybody from different levels of the firm so that we try to keep those biases out of the room, or at least we try to check each other. You know, that's big change. Having compensation, hiring committees, and not just one person or not just the equity partners sort of making that decision, that's big change. So, so Here's a question I have for you on biases, because I was, um, and I may have brought this up on another podcast episode, but I was talking to a um, management partner at this law firm in Canada, and um, he was saying to me, listen, I don't mind having women, you know, in leadership roles. The way he said it made me cringe a little bit, but, but do they have to cry? And it's not... And, and I say, well, it's okay to have men in leadership positions, but do they have to yell and punch walls? But the idea is because there's so many men in these leadership roles that they actually, they have an unconscious bias kind of built in. And how do you counter something? Like, is there anything that you could, other than, and they took diversity training, by the way, they they did the EDI, you know, we're, we're so proud of ourselves, we did that. <laughs> we took an hour worth of training or something. What do they need to do in order to really impact or affect change. So it's not a one and done when it comes to EDI. I agree. And there are no shortcuts when it comes to EDI. And if leadership is not on board as it relates to EDI, then you might as well put your head in the sand and say that there are there will be no change. And getting leadership on board is something, you know, having meetings with just leadership, trainings with just leadership, making them understand, you know, what's going to happen to their firm unless change happens. And unfortunately, a lot of that is, you know, bringing in the fact that diversity increases the bottom line. Um, you have to be really careful about racial capitalism, but I won't get into that right now. Um, <laughs> that sounds really interesting, actually. I want to learn about that. Um, so I would say that it has to be a cultural value. And if it's not a firm cultural value, then yeah. it. it it doesn't matter. You know, it can't, you can't have just an EDI committee when there's not, you know, an equity partner involved in that committee who yeah. believes in what you're doing. Yeah. And um, it has to come from the top. I actually am seeing that more and more, but I'm seeing that we have to change. We need to change. We don't know how to change because we've been so tied into this model of the billable hour and the 1800 hours. And this is, you know, it's just such an old model that I think that that change is hard. It's hard to happen. And where can they go like to find ways or models that that work? Because really some of these law firms I'm seeing are asking me anyways to help them with strategy and to do a complete overhaul of their system and to look at it. And it's daunting. It's scary. It's very different than everything they've done in their whole careers. Again, there's no shortcuts as it relates to EDI. So we're talking about, you know, multi-layered, multi-level plans. And we're talking about going in the way that CLI does it when they do deep dive consulting is first going in and doing sort of an audit discovery phase where we interview many people at many different levels um, at the firm, many different team members. We give a survey to the entire firm. 
then we look at all documentation as it relates to EDI efforts or handbooks, for example. And then we give an initial findings report. We take that initial findings report as phase two to start to begin to align with what their goals, what they want their goals to be and how they're going to get there and what the strategic plan needs to look like for them to get there. And we might need to have trainings. We might need to have facilitative conversations. We might need to do, you know, various advocacy measures in order to ensure that they have the information they need to move from A to B as it relates to, you know, um, just just a law firm to an allyship law firm or an anti-racist law firm. And then we take that information and create a strategic plan for them. And we do it, you know, we obviously bring the key stakeholders in as part of that process. We do it as inclusive as possible, getting as many people's voices in that uh, plan as possible. And it's daunting and it takes months. Yeah. It's months at the least. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Yes. And I also really appreciate the amount of work that you're doing to really grow Center for Legal Inclusiveness. What are, the, what are some of the things that you're you're most excited about right now as we kind of wrap things up? You know, I'm really excited about becoming a solutions-based organization and um, moving toward a solutions-based organization from the advocacy-based organization. And our motto for this year is our fiscal year and September 30th. So our model now is look no further. CLI is all you need. We have all the resources. We have the DEI expertise. We have the programming. We have the trainings. We have written resources. We have an amazing educational library. You get CLE credits as it relates to our programming. We can come in and do those deep dive consultations at a reduced rate. So if you're a member, so um, that's what I'm the most excited about. Well, I bet that there's a lot of listeners from different states and different countries that are going, I want a CLI. Can they still get knowledge from you? Yeah, that they can join as a member. Okay. Please go to our website, centerforlegalinclusiveness.org. Reach out. We can have a conversation and I will tell them, you know, why they absolutely need to become a member of CLI. But we do have members who are out of state. Absolutely. That's great to know. Well, I want to thank you, Sarah, so much for your time today and for sharing all of your knowledge. And I do encourage uh, listeners to visit the website. There's tons of resources. And you can also email me if you want a a link to anything I'm happy to, especially like strength binders or anything else of that nature. I'm happy to share, share it with you. So Sarah, thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to seeing more about what you do and how you change the legal world. Thanks so much, Stephanie. You're amazing. And I really appreciate the opportunity to be on your podcast. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Her Gavel make sure to subscribe and rate us. For our show notes and information on upcoming episodes, visit our website at hergavel.com. And if you'd like more information about coaching, training, or any of my books, please send email to stephanie at hergavel.com. Be sure to stay tuned for our next episode of Her Gavel, where we will continue to shadow the glass ceiling for women in law.